welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Since the 1960s, California has officially been known as the Golden State. And that's because, as the plaque reads, California's development and remarkable prosperity began with the discovery of gold. Humanity's love of gold is fairly bizarre. Of all the 118 elements in the periodic table, gold is the only one which we humans have always gravitated towards. Gold was used in our earliest currencies, gold joins us in marriage, and was used to produce our most precious artifacts. Maybe the secret to our love of gold is simply that it's beautiful and never tarnishes. In 1853, my father's great-grandfather, Henry Cohn, traveled from a tiny shtetl in what is now Poland to Hamburg, where he boarded a boat, and six months later, after walking across the Isthmus of Panama, Henry ended up in San Francisco. Henry Cohn was part of the gold rush, the largest mass migration in American history, bringing about 300,000 people to California. It all started in 1848 when James Marshall found gold in his piece of land at Sutter's Mill in Coloma. The news of gold quickly spread around the world. At first, the gold could be picked up from the ground, but later on it was recovered from the streams and rivers with the use of pans. The gold rush peaked in 1852, and after that, the gold reserves were getting thinner and harder to reach. Soon, larger scale and more environmentally damaging methods of gold extraction, called hydraulic mining, were employed. 170 years later on, the environmental legacy of the gold rush are significant and yet very rarely acknowledged. As we'll discover in today's episode, mercury, which is a deadly neurotoxin, was elemental to the process of gold mining. Today, large quantities of mercury from the gold rush are still polluting California, posing a risk to every kind of living organism, including us. I travel up to California's gold country to meet with Izzy Martin. Izzy is a community organizer and environmental advocate with over 40 years of experience working in rural communities to promote economic and environmental justice. She has worked with a wide variety of constituencies from tribal leaders to miners and from farmers to foresters. Izzy first entered local politics as a Nevada County Planning Commissioner during the 1990s and later, while serving on the Nevada County Board of Supervisors, Miss Martin led the fight to put the South Yuba River into the state's wild and scenic river program. Izzy became CEO of the Sierra Fund 16 years ago. She conceived of and led the effort that resulted in the publication of the Sierra Fund's first report on the impact of the gold rush, Mining's Toxic Legacy, and has worked for the last decade to bring attention to gold's dark shadow. On a very hot day, Izzy and I climbed to the top of a dam. We're standing above the Engelbright Dam, a... Army Corps, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Dam on the main stem of the Yuba River. Where is that, though? In Nevada County. We're about halfway between Tahoe and Sacramento, a little north of that. But not actually in Nevada, right? 
nope, we're in the state of California. <laughs> and we are standing right between Nevada County and Yuba County, and we are standing on the beautiful Yuba River, which flows down to the Feather and then the Sacramento from there down into the San Francisco Bay into the ocean. So you were a County Board of Supervisors member when you first came here. Tell us about your first experience with this dam. <laughs> I had come to Engelbright Dam a few different times over my life. It had been here my whole life. It was built and commissioned in 1947 by the Army Corps of Engineers so that people could re resume hydraulic mining. It blocks hundreds of miles of potential fish passage for fish that come from the ocean and go up into the high Sierra to lay their eggs. So when I first came to the dam, understanding that the state of California had targeted this spot and the federal government as maybe the best place to restore fish passage, at the very first meeting we went to, the U.S. Geological Survey stood up and said, you can't do anything to that dam until you look at the material behind it. It's holding back a whole bunch of mercury. And that was the very first time I had ever heard anything about mercury in the state of California and its role in the gold rush. How long have you lived in this part of the world? My family came to California as part of the gold rush. We were Quakers escaping the East Coast and a violent religious oppression. Moved out to become farmers. I was raised in Concord, California on a walnut farm. And in 1985, I married a farmer, and we moved to Nevada County, bought a beautiful organic farm in a place called Penn Valley. Tell us about this county and just its history in the gold rush, because it, it, there's a lot of history here. Nevada County was ground zero of the California gold rush. Far more gold was taken out of this county and specifically this river that we're standing above than any other place in the state of California. It's where the very uh, destructive technique called hydraulic mining, which is using power water monitors to, to scrub mountainside looking for gold, is where that was invented. They started to dam the rivers and convey that water over to these huge hydraulic mining activities uh, Activities, which were recovering thousands of ounces of gold, but millions of tons of sediment. That material here from Nevada County rolled down the river and kept flooding the Sacramento Valley. And eventually, the farmers downstream, who were really tired of having their houses filled with all this debris, sued and stopped the activity known as hydraulic mining. What's the connection between mercury and gold? Tell us how that process works. Everybody came to understand that the very dramatic impact of hydraulic mining, because it was blowing these huge amounts of sediment down the, the river. What people didn't understand was that before they used those hydraulic monitors, they would treat the cliffs with mercury. They'd pour mercury on the cliff, pound the cliffs with water, the water would wash down into sluices, and in those sluice boxes were also filled with mercury. Why did they use mercury? Mercury helped enhance gold processing. It has a unique ability to amalgamate or hold the gold. So little tiny flecks of gold that might be smaller than an eyelash would fall into the pan, but they would just wash out unless they were captured by mercury. Mercury would grab the gold, make it heavy, fall to the bottom of the sluice. When they turned the water off, miners would come through and suck that mercury out of the bottom of the sluice. They would take the mercury, put it in a hot place. They would, what they call, retort it. Like, think of a hot iron frying pan and the mercury was sort of melting off the top or, or turning into gas off the top. And at the bottom of your pan, you'd have sparkling gold. The problem with mercury is... 
Mercury is a very dangerous neurotoxin, and it's dangerous in a variety of ways, so badly that the United Nations World Health Organization and the state of California have both named it the top bioaccumulative toxic material of concern. Mercury is a neurotoxin. It affects the developmental uh, human being, so our, our ability to deform our nerves, our heart, our lungs, our brains. It creates um, serious birth defects, and people have focused on that for many, many years. But as research has been done, we learn that it continues to damage us as adults. It seems to be causing problems with our hearts, with our lungs, and with our various different organs which accumulate mercury. So it's a known neurotoxin. And that's strike one against it. Strike two is it bioaccumulates in our body. It doesn't re easily leave our bodies. Many of the things we take in, let's take alcohol, you drink it and two days later it's all out of your body. Not so with mercury. It stores itself in your body and builds up over time. Strike three is that this material does what's called biomagnifies in the environment. So the most dangerous place for a piece of mercury to be is in water, particularly in warm water, uh, mercury is taken up by the little bugs at the bottom of the food chain. They eat a little bit of it. It transfers up to the bigger bugs and then the bigger bugs and then the fish and then the humans or as we watch here today, the, the water birds that are flying around might pick up a fish and eat it. They are eating a highly toxic, potent load of mercury. So much so that the lake we're looking at here, Lake Engelbright, has fish advisories on it that advise that a woman of childbearing age eat not a single bass out of this lake. Those fish warnings, I run along the Sacramento River, they're all along the Sacramento and then you go down to San Francisco Bay, the same warnings are there. So it's infected the entire ecosystem. The mercury that is in the delta is entirely from these legacy mines in the areas we are, the gold mines. And sadly for California, we had a unique geology which let us have mercury in our state as well. The coastal range has the mercury mines, whether it's the ones down in San Jose or the ones up in Tomales Bay or up over on the Clear Lake. There are serious old legacy mercury mines which are contaminating the coastal range and the tributaries that drain from there into the bay or into the ocean. Where we are, everywhere there was gold mining, they used this mercury not only for the, the hydraulic mining but also for the hard rock mines which dominated the landscapes for a hundred years. And all of those continue to leak mercury into the state of California water bodies every time it rains. So our kind of romantic view of the gold rush is panning for gold. Give us a little history of the, the gold rush. So when did blasting cliff faces with high-pressure hoses, when did that start? Hydraulic mining was invented pretty early on in the gold rush. When the miners got out here, people need to realize that people have been looking for gold for 2,000 years. That's why the Romans stepped foot on the uh, United Kingdom's uh, original islands. They can tell by looking where the gold is. People understood geology, and they followed the gold up the rivers. So when people first got here, the gold was actually laying in the rivers. You could pick up actual nuggets. That happened for a couple of weeks, maybe a few months. Then as people started to look for 
the finds, the gold, that they started to study the geology and they could see sometimes up in cliff faces uh, what looked like old riverbeds and people began to understand the geology of California and the uplift that occurred and they realized that the gold was covered up by hundreds of feet of what people call overburden, the rest of us call it rocks and trees and, and hillsides. So people started to use, think of it as you are in your backyard with your garden hose. And you, you, get, you put your finger over it and you start to sort of spray down to try to get the dirt off the sidewalk. Over time, they put more and more power into that activity, eventually de designing systems which ran ditches through miles and miles of, of the sides of mountains, telescoping huge pipes into smaller and smaller pipes until they would be able to shoot that stream of water up to a half a mile to start uh, scrubbing down mountains looking for gold. Of course, with that amount of water and rocks flying everywhere, you had to have tunnels to drain the water away. You had to move those piles away. And so this was a very, very destructive and very expensive activity. So by the time you're in the mid-1850, 1855, putting together the money to do this kind of activity meant you had to get investors from elsewhere. That meant you started to involve government, insurance. The Sierra Fund has had the opportunity to look at old mining claims, to look at the daily operations of mines like the Malakoff diggings, and understand exactly where the sluices were, how much material they used every day, their estimates of how much they lost with every operation. So it was it was a guy and, and a donkey and, a, and hands and pans for about... Uh, a year. Mm -hmm. After that, it became a highly industrialized activity, along with hydraulic mining, which is, a, is the primary source of, of mercury contamination up where we live. They had these hard rock mines, which were also highly capitalized, drilling um, thousands of miles of tunnels through the Sierra hard granite, looking for gold. We're 170 years from then, and people still are questioning where the mercury comes from. Not very long ago, scientists thought that most of the mercury in the Delta and the San Francisco Bay that was arriving from a fresh source was coming from deposition from the clouds, from Chinese and Canadian coal burning. It, it took a long time for people to realize that mercury appears in many forms. People are used to seeing mercury as silver balls in a, in a thermometer um, or in a pressure cuff. But mercury also has many different ways it can be uh, found, of course, as a gas. Uh, mercury is an odd metal, which is liquid at, at room temperature. But it also blows apart into tiny little fragments, even as small as a molecule. And on that, in that form, it can ride on silts or clays miles and miles down the river, off, over the dam, down into the Delta and the San Francisco Bay. And in fact, that is where the modern contamination um, that's in those water bodies comes from, comes from old mines. You may not have thought of this at the beginning, but you're kind of a forensic mercury scientist. I mean, you, you're looking at where it came from, you're getting all the records, you're using all kinds of advanced technologies and grad students, and like, when did you realize that this was your vocation? I fell in love with the Yuba River when I was a little girl. I have spent almost every summer of my life up here, and when I was little, I learned how to tat a gold pan and, and found it was terribly frustrating and extremely difficult, although I can find color. 
I think I, I knew that the big threat to our river was the fish passage, that every single river from leading from the, uh, the San Francisco Bay up to the Sierra was dammed during this era of dam building and that the fish were all being killed. And so as a young woman, I started to be concerned about the fish. And it was a very long time before I started to understand the many threats left over from the gold rush. The f- ecological footprint of the gold rush not only includes this dam we're looking at, this hydraulic mine debris dam. It's the the loss of the fish. It's the genocide of the natural people that lived here. It's the meadows and the forests that were destroyed looking for gold. And we have to approach those not as a one-off. You can't just look at the mercury. You have to see the fish. You can't just look at the river. You have to see the meadows and the forests. So that's the, the, the way the Sierra Fund and my personal strategy I've brought forward is we have to try to solve multiple problems with every move we make. We don't have time for random acts of conservation that feel good over here or over there. We have to come up with an understanding of what happened and create a solution which has multiple benefits and multiple partners. So what are we going to go and see next, Izzy? We're going to follow up the Yuba River Canyon and end up at the Malakoff Diggins. Cool. Let's go. Okay, Izzy, where are we now? It says North Bloomfield Drain Tunnel. Why, why have you brought us here? We are looking at a drain tunnel that was built for the Malakoff Diggins uh, Old Pit, which at the time was called the North Bloomfield Mining Company. The tunnel was built to drain the water out of the pit. The water you see there, which is slightly cloudy, is filled with uh, particles and sediment and clay that are uh, covered with mercury or contaminated with mercury. So, okay, so they blast the cramp out of the side of the mountain and then all the material fills into a pit and then the, that, this is the water that comes out of that pit? Right, what, ha- what happened was they'd use the monitors to wash away, power wash they called it, away the mountains, uh, trees and rocks and all of that and they would sort through, sort through those materials but the water had to get out quickly so they would build these tunnels eventually this pit got so deep that the mining company built a giant tunnel it is uh, 7,874 feet long and it drained the bottom of that pit right out to the Yuba River okay so you would think, like, 170 years after the height of the gold rush, this stuff just goes away. But, like, how long would it take to naturally attenuate, naturally just disappear? The use of mercury was so extensive and it was so profoundly spread throughout the landscape through the techniques that the miners used that there is no pocket of mercury. We can't just go dig up a couple of pockets and take care of it. USGS, a few years ago, published a study which estimated that with no action taken otherwise it will take about 10,000 years before this material naturally leaves the Sierra. And this is the material left 10,000 years. 10,000 years it will take for the material left behind by the gold miners. There's really no naturally occurring sources of mercury in the Sierra Nevada property. So we know that, in fact, any mercury we find is a gold rush era artifact. So right now, if we were to do monitoring, and I know the Sierra Fund, your organization has, because last time I came here with my daughter, you showed us monitoring data. So Mm -hmm. tell us about what we'd find in that water. 
When the water is rushing out during a flashy rainstorm, the water you'd see would be filled, not at all clear. It would look like Thai iced tea, very thick uh, with sediment. And we know that when it's rushing at that level, it's discharging a huge amount of mercury. In a dry year, a few years ago in a very wet year, we found mercury coming out of this one hiller tunnel. It was about a pound of mercury that came out over the course of one season. To compare that, the entire county of Sacramento is allowed to discharge 2.2 pounds of mercury in a year into a river. This pit alone is discharging a pound of mercury itself into the river. Terrifying. So this is like the predecessor to mountaintop removal in Appalachia. Like, we, environmental movement spends a lot of time looking at like all these destructive mining practices, but they started right here in California. That's right. Hydraulic mining was invented in California. Unfortunately, it didn't stop in California. Not very long ago, the Sierra Fund had visitors from Suriname who told us that this method of hydraulic mining, including treating the cliffs prior to hydraulically mining them, um, was being used today actively in, uh, in Suriname, in the, north, the northern part of South America. I actually... Um nearly got killed in the Venezuelan jungle on the border of Brazil because I came across these hydraulic miners and uh, they thought I was with the police, which is why they wanted to kill me. They had the machetes out. It was pretty, pretty terrifying. So yeah, it's happening all over the world still, but it started here in California. It started here. We romanticize the gold rush. It's kind of part of the birth story of modern California. And yet, why is no one talking about the mercury? I don't think that most people realized the mercury had been left behind because people had the idea that it all somehow rinsed away. I think there's two explanations for that. One was nobody was really looking and, and people weren't really worried about the mercury. So that's why they weren't looking. It didn't seem dangerous. People used to play with it, roll it around in their hands. It took a long time for people to realize that mercury could get into our bodies and, and poison us, and that's through its form called methylmercury. That was learned, um, a Japanese village um, was totally decimated by mercury contamination in the 1950s, was when people first really began to realize how dangerous low levels of mercury in water translates to high levels of mercury in fish. And if you're a Japanese fishing village and all you eat is fish, you're going to get very contaminated. So that was one reason people didn't understand how the mercury got into the fish. Number two, we didn't have the scientific equipment. You just couldn't detect mercury at the low levels um, in water that, and in, in particle-bound elemental mercury that we see now. It really took the invention of electron microscopes for us to understand what we now call the fate and transport of mercury. And it's that new understanding that needs to be brought into the regulatory process and into the human consciousness that if we want to be a planet where people can eat fish, and by the way, so do cougars and bald eagles, we're going to have to find a way to clean this mercury up. So Minamoto was that place, I think, yeah. in Japan, yeah, and Minamoto there's some really disease. terrifying um, images of the birth defects. Many people thought that Minamoto's disease, those photographs are seared into people's minds. They thought those were nuclear um, Hiroshima bomb impacts. No, those are impacts from eating mercury. And what we know is that people in our country, many people that are very uh, low income, are eating mercury-contaminated fish. They're not catching and releasing sports fishermen. They're bringing that food home and feeding it to their families. And people are kind of angry at you, Izzy. Like, you, you talking of stirring up the pot, like, people feel, like, threatened that you're raising these issues. Like, 
How does that occur to you? I think that people are always looking for problems to sort of go away by magic. That this mercury problem was not well understood. 20 years ago, when I was first brought to my attention when I was a county supervisor in Nevada County, I had had a lifetime as an experienced uh, environmental activist. I spent 20 years working with pesticide poison victims. Very, very well understood that if you didn't look for the problem, you weren't going to find it. We had talked to farm workers that had all of these problems. People thought they had the flu. They thought they had they'd just gotten some sort of poison oak. No, that was symptoms of pesticide poisoning. The same deal we're seeing here with the contamination of fish. People haven't been looking at the problem. And when you raise the problem, it seems like we're just being just uh, overly cautious. That's why we have to make the point that the World Health Organization, California Department of Public Health, have named mercury contamination as one of the most serious issues facing humans. Mercury interferes with our ability to stand in balance, our, our the nimbleness of our fingers, the brilliance of our mind. It attacks what it means to be human. And we have simply got to find a way to allow people in the world to eat fish. Most people in the world get most of their protein from fish. So with California, a net generator of mercury, a very toxic burden washing out from our San Francisco Bay into the ocean, we simply have to take, take control of where it's coming from. Some environmental organizations have been upset with us because they believe that we're putting so much emphasis on mercury problems that we're stopping restoration. And what we're saying is, as you restore that forest, as you build that trail, as you restore that wetlands, let's do appropriate monitoring, let's be aware of the material we're stirring up, and at the end of the time, not only do you have a beautiful trail, you've restored, you've removed the, re removed the mercury, and the public is safer. We actually can do both of these things at once. Seems like we have to, because if we're not, we're just exposing people to more mercury, which doesn't sound like a great idea. Sometimes when people learn that they've got a toxic problem, they shut down the door. So we've been trying to advise environmental organizations and everybody, anybody buying land where we live in the Sierra, needs to look twice at what they're buying. It's true that the Sierra Fund has been controversial because we've been advocating much more careful assessment of properties before the state or the federal government spend money, public dollars, uh, doing some sort of project on it. That's also true of homeowners, like if you're thinking about buying a home in the Sierras, it would be good to know what's on it. The lack of assessment is going to finally come home and roost in the gold country. A lot of times people have not been aware that what looked to them like just some weird old wall is in fact a debris control dam, or take the Del Oro subdivision down in El Dorado County. They just took the mine tailings, they sort of smoothed them off on top, put a subdivision on top. Well, it turns out those mine tailings were filled with heavy metals and they were all draining into the creek. Well, what are you supposed to do as a landowner? You, you aren't, you're not manufacturing a subject, you're just, water's coming off your property. There has not been enough careful assessment of properties under the cities, towns, suburbia of, of the gold country. And I'm afraid banks have made loans on property uh, that were way overvalued. I'm afraid that properties have been purchased that were privately held toxic assets and are now in the possession of public trust organizations because they didn't take the time to look and see the abandoned mine on the property. So one of the cool partnerships that you're engaged in, and I'd love to find out kind of how, how it first happened, is to talk to mining companies themselves. 
I feel very fortunate to have been introduced to a variety of mining companies by some of the leaders that helped start the Sierra Fund. A fellow that was on a mining company board of directors um, and who lived in my district when I was a county supervisor introduced me to a mining company called Tykert Mining Company. Tykert is a construction materials firm that, that produces sand and gravel. They, they built Highway 5. So when I first was introduced to Tykert and I said to them, what are we going to do about all the gravel and sand trapped behind these dams, which... California needs, we need that material to rebuild our, our, our roads. We need water storage to stay intact because we don't need to be losing water storage to, to sand and gravel. And we need to solve the mercury problem. And I brought that to the mining industry and they did not find that to be a complicated or difficult problem. They know how to approach this problem. They have just been quiet about talking about it because it seems so very controversial to even their own industry. How do we manage these sorts of cleanups? But I believe that mining companies like Tykert have been incredibly important to us. We've listened to what they've had to say they have lent us fish biologists, mining engineers to help us think through what we want to do. And after a, a lot of years together, I think that, again, they have a different interest because they're a mining company, um, but we have a common vision. Where we are here is on the Humbug Trail, which this uh, Malakoff Diggins down the creek actually flows from Malakoff Diggins down to the Yuba River. The scars and impact and legacy of gold mining in California is huge. Like how many abandoned mines do they estimate e exist in California? It's difficult to estimate how many abandoned mines there are. Department of Conservation many years ago produced a number that said there was 42,000 abandoned mines, but what they really meant was features of an abandoned mine. So one mine might have dozens or even hundreds of features on it. The Sierra Fund has looked into um, how many big mines, the mines that cause the sorts of contamination we're, we're talking about. There's not tens of thousands, there's just a few thousand. And what we've learned is that these are not difficult sites to remediate. Often you just need to bring some big equipment out to re-sculpt re the mine tailings so that the creek doesn't run through them. While you're out there doing forest health treatments, you can chip the, the wood and, and leave it behind on the ground to help the denuded soils actually get some sort of organic materials. Um, we've had some fun recently experimenting with biochar, which seems to adsorb mercury, so you could um, spread that on these soils or even do mini burnings out on the forests while you're doing these forest health treatments. Use that biochar, which traps the mercury permanently in the soil. We don't have to clean it up. It just stays on the side of the forest um, harmlessly. So there's a few hundred big mines that we need to clean up. So gold has a really mythical, magical role in our society. How do you buy gold that doesn't have this toxic legacy? The Sierra Fund has been working with this international movement of ethical metalsmiths who are looking for ethically sourced gold. There are a few places in the world which have 
uh, good labor practices, good clean water practices. One of those places is the state we're standing in, the state of California. So let's take a reservoir, for example, filled with this mercury-contaminated sediment, which also has sand, gravel, and gold. If we could find a way to extract that gold, it would really come from a process that cleaned water, restored fisheries, and was uh, restored capacity to our reservoirs. We are still looking for how do you certify that clean, environmentally sound gold. The gold industry would be very interested in finding a way to do this. A small segment of the gold industry is interested in this. The other humongous piece of the gold industry doesn't want people to think about the slavery, the genocide, the children that are mining um, gold using unbelievably uh, dangerous techniques. There's been about 200,000 tons of gold taken out of the ground since the beginning of time, Izzy, but where, where has most of it ended up? Here's the great irony. 80% of the gold in the world, it's being stored underground. When the Europeans first got to California and started to talk to Indians looking for gold, the Indians had no idea what we were talking about. They didn't think anything like, they didn't find it valuable. It was something to be ignored. It was too soft to use. They first told the Spaniards about uh, mercury. They said, oh, we know rocks that, that, that cry silver. Those, those Indians were immediately made slaves in mercury mines. So it wasn't exactly to the best benefit of the Indians to bring us to the gold. They show us where the gold was, but they did it. And as a result, the 98% of the people in Nevada County that were living here for thousands of years were killed by the gold miners. We've worked with those people. We found the survivors of that genocide and are working with them. And they have the same question. Why is this gold so valuable to your people? They're really just astonished at what we've done for the gold. Where are we going next, Izzy? We'll go, we'll go to the bottom of the pit. So when you're driving around, are you just, is it nearly impossible for you to just look at the landscape as opposed to understand and think about what kind of mining activity might have happened there? Yeah, you're, you're right. Everywhere I go, I see mining activity. I, um, until, until 20 years ago, I had not realized the ecological footprint of mining and where you see it all over the state of California. There are huge mines around the Bay Area, most of which have been sheltered from view. One of those big mines, um, it's a gravel mine in the San Jose area, is an enormous source of mercury contamination in the Bay Area. Most people don't even know that because they haven't even realized that there's still active mines. Malakoff Diggins was the largest hydraulic gold mining site in California's history, and it's also the site of a state historic park. You could see this pit from the moon. Looks like a huge punch bowl. You know, what's interesting about Malakoff Diggins, if you didn't know better, you might think you're in Pr Bryce Canyon and somehow these were eroded cliffs from winds or something. But really, you can see the very sharply defined cliffs left over from the power washing where no, nothing can grow on those slopes because they're basically just straight rock. But if you look carefully up on that side over there, Jared, you can see as you look up the mountain, oddly, there's those areas that sort of look like the bottom of a riverbed. That's what they were mining for. There used to be something called the Old Motherlode River, which was filled with gold from volcanic times. It used to run from the north to the south along the eastern side of what is now California. 
when the great uplift happened, the huge mountains of the Sierra grew up, the rivers all suddenly had to go from, instead of going north to south, they started to travel east to west, cutting through this old mother load, this great huge amount of, of gold in the bottom of that ancient river. We are standing in the bottom of that ancient river, and you can see that ancient riverbed up on those cliffs on the side of us. When those boys saw that kind of uh, material, they'd aim their monitor monitors at it and tear it apart. So Izzy, how can Malakoff Diggins be fully cleaned up? You run dirty water through sand, and it removes the dirt. And what you need is a lot of sand. Jared, we're standing on 100 feet deep of sand puddle. That's what we're on. We're on sand. So you can take this material, move it through this pit to treat it, and discharge clean water. So we have a perfect solution at Malakoff Diggins. It should not be difficult to do an engineering solution to this. We think we're going to be able to do it using passive engineering, solar-powered technology. So actually sand and gravel may be the answer to gold pollution. Sand and gravel, at least for the elemental mercury that is coming out in its particle-bound form. Sand and gravel is a valuable commodity to get it out and help build things. It's going to take creative solutions, and the most important thing is people becoming aware of the problem and realizing that this is a problem that can be solved. So how has it changed your view of the world and our relationship to nature, this whole journey you've been on in the last 20 years? I'm an optimist. I believe that human beings are wired to work with each other. We can solve the problems we've created. It's really opened my eyes to both how destructive humans are and how creative we are. When we first started to talk about this problem of the mercury behind the reservoirs, I, I thought really that was going to stop our ability to fix the problem, but it turned out it really just attracted enough attention to the whole story that we can now actually, in a more comprehensive way, fix what happened during the gold rush. And I really believe Human beings need to take care of each other, but I have to do my work in a place-based way where I know what the people I know, the history I know. My family's been in this state for 170 years. So I feel that this has been a great opportunity for me to, in some ways, acknowledge the people that were here before my family got here and try to restore this place to what was here, the beautiful, functioning ecosystem that the Europeans encountered in California. Fish running to the mountains, beautiful forests, incredible food. I think it's our obligation to restore it to that. A huge thank you to Izzy Martin for her leadership in bringing the toxic legacy of the gold rush into public view. Every time I meet with Izzy, she teaches me the value of having a deep understanding and connection to the people and land around us. Izzy works on issues affecting her community. When we lose that connection, we risk drifting into a place where environmental issues become so abstract that they no longer have relevancy for any community. Izzy works with anyone willing to help, not just the usual suspects, but mining companies, real estate appraisers, in fact, anyone who genuinely wants to solve the impacts of gold's toxic legacy. Gold represents a unique view into the human psyche. We have given gold a value. We have destroyed peoples and ecosystems to pull gold from mountainsides. We have then turned that gold into bars that we put in vaults back under the ground. And all the while, 
we've failed to acknowledge gold's toxic legacy. Maybe that's because gold continues to play a central role in the mythology of California. Gold is at the heart of the California dream, the one that says anyone can get rich quickly by being at the right place at the right time and working hard. That myth is alive and well in Silicon Valley, where a few people got rich from inventions in their garages. The reality is that not many got rich in the gold rush, and very many are living in their vans to afford work in Silicon Valley today. The gold rush is responsible for giving us the thrill of instant gratification that is fueling our desire for more and more crap we don't need or ultimately even want. By fully acknowledging gold's toxic legacy, we are afraid we might tarnish gold's mythical and actual value. As Izzy forcefully stated, we simply can't ignore hard realities because they may be difficult to resolve. Rather, we need to roll up our sleeves and thoughtfully pursue solutions. The music this week was Irish Tin Whistle performed by Izzy Martin. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, remember that not everything that glitters is gold. <laughs>